And the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. And if you would just look with me at the first verse of Genesis 33. Genesis 33, and uh, just briefly, I'd say that the structure of this text is really straightforward. Um, We'll we'll be following the narrative simply as it progresses for us on the page. Uh, You'll notice just in the first three verses there, you have the anticipation of the meeting with Jacob and Esau. Verses 4 to 15, you have the conference of sorts between the two brothers. And then 16 to the end, you have something of its resolution. What I would say before we read this is that you and I, we encounter in this 33rd chapter what effectively is the conclusion of the Jacob and Esau story. Uh, This is, of course, that that narrative that begins back in the 25th chapter, and now we really leave the two brothers. We'll see them once again at the death of Isaac, but by and large, this is really the conclusion um, in many ways of our sustained focus on their relationship. And as you look at chapters 34 and 35, you'll notice that not only is this really the end for a time of our focus on Jacob and Esau, but for a time we're going to be leaving Jacob entirely. We'll be looking at Dinah, and we'll be looking at all of the issues that followed from that, from that particular narrative. So in 33, we leave Jacob, at least for a time, and we leave Esau, really, for the last time. I want us to take up this text, this Genesis chapter 33, And we'll just work through it. It's a few verses. It's not very long. And so I'll probably make longer comments as we read uh, rather than reserving them for the end. Again, hear, hear the word of the living God. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. He put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they went. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are those with thee? And he said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children, and they bowed themselves. Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. 
And he said, What meanest thou by all this drove? These, and he said, which I met, and he said, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. I want to just pause here for a moment and really resituate ourselves, if we can, to what we left in Genesis 32. You remember, we left the patriarch at the river Jabbok. We left him there at Peniel. And as you remember as well, Jacob is a changed man. Jacob, you remember, there in chapter 32 has his name changed. His very physical condition has been altered. And now we see him encountering the fear that provoked such preparation and such prayers as we found in the previous chapter. But now as we look at Jacob here, I want to ask the question, is there any other regard in which the patriarch has changed? That's a question I want to answer at the end of our time together. But I want you to keep that in front of you. Is there anything discernible in these verses that seems to be somewhat different about the patriarch? I do want to highlight that there is something of an inversion. Now, if you remember back to when we looked at Jacob and Esau before, you remember there that the patriarch met his brother under very different circumstances. And if you look at the way in which these two men talk to each other in this text, you'll notice that the entire thing, the entire relationship seems to be upended. What do I mean by that? Well, just to think of where we left these two men. Think about how we left Jacob. Jacob was a man who was fleeing. Fleeing because, of course, he had stolen the birthright, at least that's how Esau interpreted it, and fleeing because he feared Esau, his brother, would kill him. Now, Jacob, you remember, as Isaac blessed him, as Isaac performed the work of a prophet, he blessed him and reminded him of what was given to him by election, and that was that Jacob would be Lord over Esau. Now look at how these two men address, them, address each other in our text. Jacob refers to Esau as Lord. Esau refers to Jacob as brother. It's a bit of an inversion, isn't it? Esau had no brotherly affection for Jacob when last we saw him. And previously, we were told that Jacob would be Lord over all of Edom. Now what do we make of that? Well, I want you to look at another element of what we've just read, and I think this might help us interpret it. So if you look down here, you'll notice that in verse 3, seven times Jacob bows himself before meeting Esau. There are two ways interpreters take that genuflection. It could either be that the man is bowing toward Esau. Um, others would take that as to mean that he's actually fallen to prayer. Um, Commentators are relatively evenly divided on that question. However we take it, though, we recognize this much, that Jacob is approaching Esau with the expectation that he will find his brother now as he left him before, as we find throughout this text. As Jacob approaches, his hope is to find grace in the sight of his brother. Now, if you keep all of that in front of you, 
you come down just to the next several verses and you find the handmaidens and their children also engaged in genuflection, which I do think lends credibility to the idea that Jacob is bowing toward his brother in this point. But however we take it, what you and I find here is that Jacob sends all of these gifts toward Esau first. Now, if you and I keep that in front of us just for a moment, we'll see why that's significant and how that answers the two questions we just raised. Uh, The first question being, of course, has Jacob changed at all? And the second thing is, why why are these brothers seemingly acting contrary to how we left them? So picking up our reading again here at verse 9, note what again Esau says. He says, And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face, as though I had seen the face of God. And thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing which is brought to thee. Because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. I do want to partially answer that question that I began with, and that is, do we see any change in the patriarch? And in this verse, first, specifically verse 10, I would say that we do see something of a change. In verse 4, you have Esau running to the patriarch. And we find that he's running at him not to destroy him, he's running at him to embrace him. Which, as you look at chapter 32, and you look at all the grief and the anxiety that we see in the patriarch there, of course this is not what Jacob expected. And yet this is precisely what occurs. Now, how is Jacob to interpret that? It's to interpret this as though his brother has had a true change of heart. Is he to regard this as though Esau is no longer the man that he knew before, some two decades prior? Well, I believe in this 10th verse, you and I have something of an answer to that question. And indeed, something of an answer to the question of how the patriarch himself has changed. He says, I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God. That's a striking turn of phrase, isn't it? Especially leaving Peniel, where we find Jacob naming the place where he wrestled with God, the very face of God. What do we see in this moment? Well, friend, I would submit to you that in this 10th verse, Jacob recognizes that this wonderful and unexpected answer to prayer is nothing less than the favorable providence of God shining on him. He doesn't trust Esau himself. But he recognizes in this providence, he sees the gracious mercy, as it were, the favorable countenance of his God. And in that, I would suggest at first that Jacob has become a changed man. Jacob wrestled with the Lord, you remember, at the Jabbok. As we said before, that wrestling there and the name change that follows is to indicate that the people of God will often wrestle with God. Often God will appear to be their combatant. But Jacob has learned that though it may appear that for a time, God indeed is faithful. He will be gracious. And even as we see in this text, far beyond what God's people might imagine. 
That's the first thing I want to draw your attention to. The second thing, and this is why we read 2 Samuel, is because of what you have there in verse 11. Now, we've left these brothers, of course, previously with the great, great ordeal of the birthright. But if you look at verse 11, you'll notice that there is the word blessing. I take, I pray thee, says Jacob, my blessing that is brought to thee. It's a striking turn of phrase again, isn't it? Because again, when you think of these two brothers, when last they met, it was the blessing of God that was so central to all of their difficulties. And now Jacob goes to his brother and he says, let the blessing that I have received, let it be that you partake of that. If you notice, Jacob also refers to Esau as Lord. So not only is Jacob saying, let the blessing that I have fall on you, it seems as though the patriarch is reversing the very blessing that was given to him by saying to to his brother Esau that he is Lord over him, and that Jacob is but a servant. What do we make of that? Why this inversion? Again, I think in many contemporary reflections on this text, popular reflections, some would come to the conclusion that this is simply Jacob being a successful politician. Uh, He, as it were, as one commentator, more recent commentator put it, he simply knows how to get himself out of trouble. I don't think you and I are supposed to see that at all. Uh, There's nothing in this text that should indicate as much to us. It is true that he was certainly trying to find grace, as he says it, in the eyes of Esau. But there's nothing in the text to indicate that he was willing to contradict the blessing of God and the election of God. So what is going on here then? And the answer to that, I think, lies in, in the text that we just read. He says, take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee. In other words, what Jacob goes to Esau, and it's the same in the original, he is saying essentially, let that blessing that I have, that God has given me, Let it be that you partake of that. Now, friend, if you think about this, this one text should highlight for us what Jacob longed for from the blessing of God. He sends over all that he had gained, well, not all, but much of what he had gained from Laban that came under the blessing of God because he was the one whom God had chosen to enter into covenant with. Excuse me. And yet he's content to part with all of those temporal things. And he even allows Esau that temporal, that civil advantage by calling him Lord. What this teaches us, friend, very clearly is that the covenant for Jacob was not about earthly privilege and land. Yes, it included that, certainly. But ultimately, he is willing to give up all of those things, willingly, because he knows that the chief blessing of the covenant is God himself. Uh, Friend, we can't lose that as we look at this text. I don't know why in contemporary interpretation we've drifted from that understanding, but that's evidently in the text. He's willing. Here you, you find no greedy Jacob. Here you find no conniving patriarch. Here's a man quite willing to give the riches that he has received. Evidently, because like Abraham before, he sought no continuing city here. Jacob 
longed for the covenant of God, not for its temporal advantages, but for God himself. And is even pleased to give those very things to Esau, if need be. We'll come back to that theme at the end. But I want us to continue our reading here, moving to the 12th verse. And he said, Let us take our journey and let us go, and I will go before thee. And he said unto him, My Lord knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flocks shall die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me and the children be able to endure, until I come unto my Lord, unto Seir. And Esau said, Let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, What needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way unto Seir. And Jacob journeyed unto Succoth, and built him a house, and made booths for his cattle. Uh, therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram, and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of the field where he had spread his tent, at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of, of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Yisrael. Now, as we come to the end of this narrative, as I said to you before, we are now leaving Jacob and Esau, and essentially not to really meet with them again, at least not in any substantial sense. So what do we make of this? Jacob, of course, refers to Esau as Lord, urges him to take all of, well, many of the good things that God had given him, really as a gift. Very, very likely this is supposed to be seen as, as Jacob demonstrating that he would be no burden to Esau and, and that he wanted to demonstrate goodwill to his brother. Esau accepts it. And, and also you'll notice that whenever Jacob calls him Lord, Esau doesn't refuse that that title. But it nevertheless remains the same, that whenever Esau refers to Jacob, he calls him my brother. Whenever he refers to the children, it's almost, it's almost in a way of congratulations, isn't it? When you look at verse 5, who are these with thee? Then when it returns to the flock, and what are these? It's, it's almost as though Esau is all affection and all brotherly love all of a sudden. So what do we make of what you find at the end of this text? Whenever Esau invites Jacob to come with him to Mount Seir, and Jacob very evidently has no desire to do so. Is Esau supposed to be interpreted as, as the loving brother and Jacob the, the not trusting brother in this scenario? I suppose you and I, as we look at this text, we could come to either conclusion. Either this is an instance where Esau is is dissembling, and Jacob sees that, or Esau is being quite quite cordial and, and genuinely so, and Jacob is simply not trusting. Again, we could interpret it either way, but 
But I'd submit to you that we shouldn't be too harsh on the patriarch. If, if Esau was genuine, I want you to remember how Jacob was welcomed by Laban. In fact, the text describes this meeting the same way that it describes Jacob meeting Laban. Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. That's how Laban and Jacob met. And Jacob soon found that that embrace was suffocating. It was a grief to the patriarch that his family was so hard dealt with by one who feigned such affection. One could hardly could hardly judge the patriarch for, for wanting to keep some distance uh, from a brother such as Esau. But even if that is the case, what you have there in verse 14 does appear to be lying. Uh, now, you notice this. Esau invites him to come to Seir. Jacob says, let me tarry. And he says this, until I come unto my Lord unto Seir. That never happens. Jacob never follows Esau to Mount Seir. Now, there is some arguments that could be made that perhaps the patriarch intended to go at some stage but was simply detained in, in Sakuth. But as we look at this text in a broader sense, it does seem very likely that Jacob intended and in fact bought land so as to stay at Sakuth. Um, this is, by the way, the only place, aside from Abraham burying, buying plots to bury his family, that you find any of the patriarchs buying land in the land of Canaan. It does seem that Jacob does not intend to go to Seir. And as such, of course, the patriarch here is inexcusable. Uh, if he feared Esau, uh, he, he, ought, he had all, every right um, for the sake of self-preservation to keep at some distance, but he ought not to have assembled. I think in verse 15, you could argue that Esau, Esau himself intended no, no ultimate good for Jacob. Uh, the idea of leaving men with Jacob does seem a bit, a bit like a man seeking to, to put him under surveillance um, and perhaps, uh, perhaps just to keep him at bay. I think Jacob dem demonstrates that that this will be an affliction to him very clearly. He says, let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. Now, this will be an affliction to him. And so the two brothers, they finally part. Now, as we close our meditations on this 33rd chapter, I read Second Samuel because I, I wanted to demonstrate that what you have in Jacob is the same thing that you see in David at the end of his life. And I think, I think for us, uh, this is one of the most helpful ways for us to understand the saints under the Old Covenant. What I mean by that is that if you look at Jacob and you look at David, both men are brought to an extremity. Uh, both men have just faced incredible ordeals that shake the very foundation of their temporal well-being. David, of course, is nearing the end of his life, but only after one trial succeeding another. And yet, what is his conclusion? Jacob, who had been, sorry, David, who had been promised so much, a kingdom, a lineage unending. What is ultimately the thing that David holds on to under all of these difficulties as he looks at the threshold of eternity? Ultimately, his fixation 
is on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom those promises are yea and amen. I say that for a number of reasons. The promise that David cites there refers to one man who would rule over all men justly. Um, that necessarily must be the Lord Jesus. Let all of those temporal benefits of the covenant come to David. Still the substance of the covenant who is Christ is dearest of all to him. And now look at the patriarch. The patriarch is quite willing to allow Esau every worldly good, even the temporal blessings that he's received, calling him Lord. And why is that? Well, friend, because ultimately those temporal blessings, though good, and though ought to be cherished, for Jacob they were not the substance of the covenant. Let Esau have them if he must. Ultimately, it was simply that God would be his God, that Jacob desired most of all. And for us, as we leave this text and seek to apply it to ourselves, that must be for us the same thing. If God took away every temporal advantage that you know, if he took away every kindness that you've had up to this point in your lives, could you be content still just knowing that this God is your God? If he took all but left himself, would that be sufficient? Here you find in Jacob, ears you also see in David, that it was so with them. And maybe may it be so with us. Let's close our time coming to the throne of grace together. Our blessed and eternal God, we thank you and we